Welcome, vampires from near and far. Count Dracula. I am. I'm a vampire! I'm a vampire! I'm a vampire! I'm a vampire! Vampire never drink. Why? If your partner is ever bitten by a vampire, never, never let him live. Hello, ghouls and goblins. Welcome to a special Halloween episode of the Sons of Antiquity podcast. I am your host, Dan, and I'm joined in the morgue by my co-host, Evan. Greetings. The Halloween season is a time of falling leaves, colder nights, scary movies, fog-filled graveyards, and campfire tales of creatures and monsters. And while many of Halloween's greatest villains are certainly worthy of their own episode, tonight we'll be sinking our teeth into vampire lore. Where and when did the legend of the vampire originate? How has it transformed over the centuries? Are there similar vampire legends in other cultures, in other parts of the world? And are modern depictions of these bloodthirsty creatures just shadows of their former selves? Of course not. Everyone knows vampires don't have shadows. Or reflections in mirrors. That's right. So Evan, take us back to the beginning. What exactly spawned the legend? of the vampire. To fully understand the origins of vampires as we know them, we must begin in medieval Europe. The power and influence of the Ottoman Turks was growing steadily, and by the end of the 14th century, Islamic forces had expanded far beyond the Middle East and were swallowing up Mediterranean territories, as well as those around the western edge of the Black Sea in modern-day Bulgaria and Romania. Check out episode 22, The Crusades, for a more in-depth discussion of this expansion and the European resistance. The presence of the Ottomans turned the cold, quiet mountains of Romania, a region known as Transylvania, into a hotbed of violent military action, as Christian forces repelled the invaders year after year. One of the leaders in this ongoing struggle was a man by the name of Vlad II Dracul, who ruled over Wallachia, an area south of Transylvania. Vlad Dracul gained this interesting surname after being inducted into the Order of the Dragon. The Order of the Dragon, or Drakenorden in German, which sounds way cooler, was a chivalric order formed at the request of Hungary's king, Sigismund of Luxembourg, in 1408. Originally, 24 knights were inducted and charged with protecting the king and the royal family, sort of like the president's secret service. But the order soon grew to include political allies, supporters, and powerful monarchs, and when Sigismund eventually rose to become Holy Roman Emperor, membership in this once modest order became highly coveted, and loyalty to its founder came with a number of perks. In 1431, a young prince of Wallachia named Vlad II was brought to Nuremberg to join the ranks of the Drakenorden. Though Vlad II was technically an illegitimate son and had little chance of actually assuming the throne back home in Wallachia, Sigismund rewarded his allegiance to the order by helping him seize power in Romania following the death of Vlad's male relatives, who had legitimate claims to the throne. Vlad Dracul honored the order in Sigismund's favor by using dragon-related iconography on coins, flags, and seals. You could say it almost became part of his personality. But let's get back to those pesky Ottomans. In 1442, the Sultan Murad II invited Vlad Dracul to a meeting to discuss diplomatic relations. Dracul had been willing to maintain an uneasy relationship with the Turks, 
providing that they didn't barge into his territory. But when word of a possible occupation reached his ears, Dracul refused to permit it. In order to smooth things over, he packed up some belongings, gathered his sons, Vlad III and Radu, headed for Gallipoli, where Europe connects with modern-day Turkey, and probably said something like, What could possibly go wrong? As it turned out, the meeting was a ploy to capture the Transylvanian royalty and hold them hostage. The Turks eventually made a deal with Vlad Dracul, allowing him to go free while his sons remained in enemy hands. Historians disagree on the severity of punishments, if any, Vlad's sons suffered while in captivity. Some suggest they were tortured for a time. Others claim they may have been forced to watch as the Turks impaled and otherwise mutilated their countrymen or other Turkish enemies. In any case, the Vlad brothers did manage to receive a surprisingly good education during this time. We at the Sons of Antiquity podcast may characterize the Ottomans as barbaric and thuggish from time to time, but in reality their collective knowledge was quite impressive. In fact, one could argue that the Renaissance wouldn't have been the same if many ancient works hadn't been preserved in the Middle East following the fall of Rome, only to be rediscovered by the Crusaders who brought them back to Europe centuries later. Anyway, the Vlad brothers made the best of a bad situation by learning philosophy, mathematics, horseback riding, fighting, and history. This last subject could also explain how they learned of the Turks' taste for cruel and unusual punishments. Meanwhile, Vlad Dracul was killed in a skirmish with rival feudal lords and his third son died as well. Shortly after these events, Vlad III, also called Vlad Tepes or Vlad Dracula, meaning son of Dracul, a name which we'll use for the rest of the episode for the sake of convenience, and his brother Radu were freed from Ottoman captivity when Vlad made it his mission to reclaim his land and defend it from the barbaric invaders by any means necessary. His first task upon gaining freedom was to deal with the local rivals who had killed his father. The word boyar is a general term which refers to the feudal nobles of Eastern Europe. Like most places, the interactions between these feudal rulers played as much of a role in determining ownership of territory as invasion of outside forces did. In order to unify Wallachia against the Ottomans, Vlad Dracula had to depose its current voivode, or warlord, Vladislav II, a relative of Dracula's. It was speculated that Vladislav II may have enlisted the help of the Turks to overthrow Vlad Dracul some years earlier, which wouldn't have sat well with the young Dracula. However, what we know for sure is that Vladislav II didn't send any troops or aid to his countrymen during the Battle of Kosovo in 1448, a decisive battle which ended in Turkish victory against the Hungarian Crusaders and killed any chance of preventing the sack of Constantinople five years later. This angered a powerful regent named John Hunyadi, a veteran and POW of Kosovo, and a former associate of Vladislav II, who may have also helped overthrow Vlad Dracul. So once Hunyadi escaped from the Ottomans, he returned to his homeland and seized some of Vladislav's territory, essentially ending their alliance. When Vlad Dracula entered the picture, Hunyadi took this opportunity to team up and work toward their mutual goal of overthrowing Vladislav II. On July 22, 1456, Dracula led a small army to corner his opponent. Rather than do battle, the two leaders agreed to a duel to the death, hand to hand. Our man Dracula won the fight and, legend has it, personally beheaded his rival on the spot. Legend also says that he dabbed and teabagged Vladislav's body in true gamer fashion. But this is unconfirmed. Either way, this was only the beginning of his savagery. Now that the throne was his, 
Vlad Dracula had to consolidate power and bring an end to the constant internal conflict between the boyars. So he did what any wise ruler would do. He took the Machiavellian approach. This led to a brutal purge and mass execution campaign directed squarely at the boyar class, in which hundreds or perhaps thousands of nobles were killed, most of them impaled on wooden stakes. According to legend, Vlad once invited more than a hundred boyars to his castle for a feast. Halfway through, he ordered every guest to be stabbed or incapacitated in some fashion before impaling each and every one of them, whether they were dead or still breathing, to be put on display around Wallachia's capital, Targoviste, where most of his victims were placed. Now for a quick note on the actual logistics of impalement. Very pleasant subject. This process was used more for torture than murder, in order to maximize the intimidation factor. Seeing a human kebab dangling 10 feet above your head is bad enough. Watching it move and hearing it scream is another thing entirely. Impalement was often done vertically, up through the nethers, using a rounded wooden pole that would more easily displace internal organs without damaging them, as the stake was forced up through the body, and out through a hole in the shoulders or through the mouth. Alternatively, the stake could be sharpened and driven through the lower abdomen to avoid the heart and lungs. This unfathomably awful torture could allow a victim to suffer for many hours or even days, all the while striking fear into any who might wish to challenge the man responsible for such a dreadful act. Boy, learning history sure is fun. But impalement wasn't Dracula's only skill. Oh no, he was multi-talented. Burning, boiling, beheading, and skinning were just a few of his other methods. According to legend, he may have also enjoyed a few meals while surrounded by impaled corpses, or dipped his food in the blood of his victims. Knowing how cruel he truly was, these details aren't all that hard to believe. And as if that weren't enough, here's two more stories about good old Dracula that are sure to warm your heart. In 1459, Ottoman emissaries met with Dracula and his men, but did not remove their hats for religious reasons. Vlad took offense to this, and had his men drive nails through their heads to keep the Ottomans' hats in place permanently. Later, in 1462, Dracula wrote this in a letter to an ally, quote, I have killed peasants, men and women, old and young, who lived at Oblikitsa and Novoselo, where the Danube flows into the sea. We killed 23,884 Turks, without counting those whom we burned in homes or the Turks whose heads were cut by our soldiers. Thus, your highness, you must know that I have broken the peace. Gotta love the precision. But the most horrific and impressive feat accomplished by Vlad Dracula III must be his forest of corpses. In 1461, Vlad killed and impaled Ottoman tax collectors who dared enter his land to demand their annual tribute. And to add insult to injury, he pushed into Ottoman territory and destroyed defensive encampments just across the border. This, of course, angered the notorious Mehmed II. The sultan whose actions during the sack of Constantinople in 1453 had earned him the title of conqueror. For more on that, listen to episode 9, Epic Last Dance of History. So he decided to put Vlad in his proper place. Mehmed II put together an army nearly 100,000 strong and headed north, while Vlad assembled a more modest force of poorly armed peasants, a third the size of the opposition, and went scorched earth on the invaders burning crops, poisoning wells, and destroying all resources ahead of the Ottoman forces. They also launched guerrilla-style raids and even made a failed assassination attempt on Mehmed II. However, these tactics failed to stop the army from reaching the outskirts of the capital, so Dracula hatched a new scheme. As the Ottomans reached the city, 
they found it deserted. The gates of the outer wall were open. No men stood on guard. It was a ghost town. As they moved inward, they discovered a sight unlike anything they had ever seen. Apparently, Vlad had been stockpiling dead Ottomans from prior campaigns and chose that moment to arrange them in true Wallachian fashion. According to The Histories, a work by historian and contemporary of Dracula's Chalka Condolese, 20,000 impaled bodies were spread out for over a mile. In his own words, There were large stakes there on which, as it was said, about 20,000 men, women, and children had been spitted. There were infants too affixed to their mothers on the stakes, and birds had made their nests in their entrails. The sultan was seized with amazement and said that it was not possible to deprive of his country a man who had done such great deeds, who had such a diabolical understanding of how to govern his realm and its people. And he said that a man who had done such things was worth much. Might want to say, a man after his own heart. The sight was so repulsive and strangely awe-inspiring that Mehmed II said, All right, I'm going to head out, and led his army south in a withdrawal. Meanwhile, the locals weren't too happy with Vlad Dracula's scorched-earth tactics, which had left the land in ruins and their livelihoods destroyed, so he was promptly ousted and replaced by his brother, Radu. Dracula was then imprisoned in Hungary for a number of years. Following his release, he managed to take back the throne for a third and final time in 1476. But after only a couple of short months, the Ottoman-backed rebels defeated Vlad Dracula, beheaded him, and shipped his noggin back to Constantinople to be placed on display. Historians estimate that about 80,000 people were killed under Vlad Dracula's rule, with a quarter of those being impaled. This may seem terrifying to modern people with modern sensibilities, but considering that the Ottomans would have done the same exact thing, and in many cases did, the level of brutality was par for the course. It's easy to judge the man while you sip your coffee in your air-conditioned room, listening to this podcast while the most advanced militaries in the world keep you safe from harm. But if the Ottomans showed up at your doorstep right now, swords and spears in hand, ready to shove a wooden pole up your bum, you better believe you'd be wishing for a stockpile of dead bodies to string up. Food for thought. Regardless, the cruelty and audacity of Vlad's reign has sparked the imagination of Western minds for centuries. So much so that the vampire may not have been the integral part of Spooktober that it is today without him. Vampirism has existed in folk legend for millennia, but it exclusively pertained to demons and spirits, not humans. Such beliefs existed in India, the Roman Empire, and many places in between. They are considered precursors to the modern vampire. Various blood-sucking entities have been a part of folk religions in Africa, Asia, and even the Americas. Vampires are creatures that subsist by feeding on the vital essence, aka the blood, of the living. The modern idea of the vampire originated in southeastern Europe, think Slavic regions, in the 1700s. Lots of entities could become vampires, such as witches, demons, suicides, victims of vampire bites, rebels against the Orthodox Church, and possessed corpses. Back then, vampires were said to be bloated and ruddy, usually ascribed to their consumption of blood. So how would one prevent vampires from springing up then? It was common for Slavs and Greeks to bury their dead upside down and put various objects near the corpse to ward off demons. Even in modern Greek folklore, a wax cross and a piece of pottery with the inscription Jesus Christ Conquers placed on corpses prevents vampirism. Another interesting custom was to place tiny seeds or sand near the corpse to keep the vampire busy counting all the grains. 
And as we know from Sesame Street, vampires love to count. This leads us to the belief that OCD was associated with vampires. So we're in agreement that vampires are bad news and fairly common. How do you identify them? A trip to the graveyard is in order, of course. With the use of a white or a black horse and virgin boys, one can easily decipher which graves contain vampires. Some reported cases purported that the exhumed body looked lively and had blood all over it. Also, death of livestock and nighttime harassment were taken as signs that a local vampire was added again. So using the tactics we mentioned, you have now found a vampire. How do you protect yourself and your village? Natural remedies include garlic, of course, but also a few other herbs and mustard seeds. If those don't work, let us remember that vampires have aversions to holy things. Therefore, crucifixes, rosaries, holy water, and consecrated grounds, like a church, serve as extra protection. In addition, try eating the corpse's blood or the grave's dirt to keep him in his grave. So let's say the vampire won't leave you alone and he wants to drink your blood. How do you kill him once and for all? Stabbing him through the heart with a wooden stake seems to be the preferred method. Originally, this method came about because the vampire, inflated with blood, needed to be quote-unquote popped. To be extra sure, decapitate the corpse. This tends to do the trick. And if you want to go the extra mile, take a page out of Sam and Dean's book from the show Supernatural and salt the body before setting it on fire. Be careful though. Mirrors are a reflection of the soul and vampires don't have souls. So don't expect to see him coming from behind you before he attacks. Much like witch hunts, vampire sightings exploded in Eastern Europe in the 18th century, ironically, during the Age of Enlightenment. Many corpses were stabbed and beheaded. This mania spread to Germany and England through retellings and works of fiction, such as the famous Dracula. We will discuss that later, don't worry. For whatever reason, vampire sightings never took off in Catholic Europe except pockets of France. All good things must come to an end, though. It's worth noting that in 1749, Pope Benedict XIV wrote that incorruptibility of corpses was a sign of sainthood, not vampirism. Also, vampires did not exist, and never have, never will. And all supposed attributes of vampires could be explained by natural causes or imagination, according to the Holy Father. A few prominent cases were investigated, but Habsburg Empress Maria Theresa passed laws prohibiting the opening of graves and desecration of bodies after her own investigation. Her policies were followed by other European nations, so today the vampire lives on in fiction alone, mostly. Strangely, vampire sightings still happen, though they are rare. Vampire hunting societies still exist, but now it's just more of a fun social club. Who would have thought? The African country of Malawi had a vampire mania in 2002 when five people were attacked and one was stoned to death for vampirism, including a governor, for colluding with the vampires. Again, in 2017, six alleged vampires were killed. Before we conclude, let's not forget to mention the beloved chupacabra. It's not human, but it still counts. This is kind of a wolf-like creature that feeds upon the blood of livestock in Puerto Rico and Mexico. It may not be more believable than Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster, but if it means anything, Tucker Carlson recently did an entire documentary about it. Sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Speaking of fiction, the vampire has been a crucial part of the horror genre in books, film, and television. Before we begin this discussion, let us stress that we are about to give a lot of spoilers for books and movies. If you care to read or watch these, you have been warned. 
In the early 19th century, a man named William Wilkinson, who was the British consul to Wallachia, penned a book titled An Account of the Principalities of Wallachia and Moldavia, with various political observations relating to them. Quite a long title. In this work, the consul, shall we say, fleshed out the history of the area, the exact details of which many Western Europeans were unfamiliar with. This revived popular interest in the legend and notoriety of Vlad the Impaler. The first vampire-themed work of fiction was The Vampire by John Polidori, published in 1819. It was inspired by a story told by Lord Byron, a popular English poet and celebrity at the time. In the story, a vampire preys on women by seducing them and then killing them. In 1847, Varney the Vampire was published, which gives us the modern trope of vampires having fangs. The most famous example of vampires in literature is Dracula by Bram Stoker, published in 1897. The book is technically an epistolary novel, meaning that it isn't written in traditional prose. Rather, the story is told through various letters, sections from newspapers, and testimonies from the characters. The story begins with Jonathan Harker, who takes a business trip to Transylvania to stay with the mysterious Count Dracula in his lavish castle. Once Dracula reveals his bloodthirsty desires, Harker escapes. But Dracula moves to England because I guess he needed a little time, a little space, a place to find himself, you know? This is when Abraham Van Helsing steps onto the scene and learns of Dracula's reign of terror, and he saves the townsfolk by leading the group to kill him. Some speculate that Stoker was familiar with William Wilkinson's History of Transylvania and incorporated certain details into his novel, as well as details concerning Elizabeth Bathory, a 16th century Hungarian noblewoman who allegedly murdered hundreds of women and young girls. Though, some have argued that the accusations against Bathory were nothing but Habsburg disinformation. Other historians argue, based on Stoker's own notes on the novel lacking any mention of Vlad or Bathory, that it's all coincidence and Stoker chose the name Dracula because he read it in a random book and thought it meant devil in Romanian. The world may never know. But what we do know is that Bram Stoker's literary vision drove a wooden stake right through the heart of pop culture, where it remains to this day. Currently, there are over 170 film versions of Dracula. Some of the notable adaptations include Nosferatu, Shadow of the Vampire, Hotel Transylvania, numerous titled simply Dracula, Dracula Untold, Dracula in Istanbul, Dracula, Prince of Darkness, Dracula Goes to Camp, and Dracula, Diary of a Mad Black Woman. Okay, alright, I made up those last two, but the rest of them are real. There are so many great vampire stories, but when most modern Americans think of vampires, sadly, the Twilight series is probably the first thing to come to mind. The series of four fantasy romance novels, two companion novels, and one novella were all written by Stephanie Meyer. The story follows a teenage girl named Bella who falls in love with a mysterious man named Edward, who turns out to be a vampire. For the record, he is over 100 years old, but he looks like he's in his 20s. Very convenient. Luckily, Edward and his family only drink animal blood. I will briefly summarize the four books to save you the torment. Vampires try to kill Bella. Edward leaves Bella. She gets sad. She gets close to a shapeshifter wolf named Jacob. Edward almost kills himself. She breaks Jacob's heart by marrying Edward. She gets pregnant with a mutant baby. She becomes a vampire. And after some contention, they live happily ever after. Summit Entertainment made five movies out of this, starring Robert Pattinson, Kristen Stewart, and Taylor Lautner. 
the series made a whopping $3.3 billion in total at the box office. Despite not a single film receiving more than 50% expert score on Rotten Tomatoes. Imagine that. An interesting fact that I found out in research is that Meyer is a devout Mormon and the works are supposedly in line with her beliefs. I didn't know that. That's news to me. Yeah, that's why they wait till marriage and, and she can't. She takes a submissive role. Oh, and the, and the vampires don't drink coffee or anything? <laughs> Maybe. They don't need it. <laughs> yeah, I guess that blood is pretty energizing, I'm right? I'm high on life, fam. <laughs> so let's move on to uh, some better vampire entertainment here. Buffy the Vampire Slayer is a 1992 American comedy horror film in which a high school cheerleader named Buffy, of course, is chosen by fate to hunt vampires. The movie wasn't a huge success, but when they converted it into a TV series, it really came into its own, commercially and artistically. The show lasted for seven seasons and earned 84% on Rotten Tomatoes. And then there's True Blood, which was also a seven-season TV series. I'll buy it with a 70% rating. In the series, scientists develop synthetic blood so that vampires don't have to prey on humans. And all of a sudden, the world finds out that there are lots of vampires running around. Both vampire and non-vampire worlds are split between wanting to integrate the vampires into society and wanting to exclude them as others. Apparently, it promotes a lot of liberal garbage about equal rights, drugs, etc. The Vampire Diaries is another TV series about regular girls falling in love with vampires. Enough said. And let's not forget everyone's favorite, Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. It's exactly how it sounds, and it got terrible reviews, but some people seem to like it in an ironic kind of way. And you can count me among those. You know, I'm a fan of cringe movies and terrible movies at times. Leonard, Part 6, The Room, the list goes on. And I think this one actually had something to offer as far as, like, cringe humor. Uh, I watched it shortly after it came out on DVD, and I can confirm that it it actually was very terrible. Especially at the end, when you get a not-so-subtle hint that the job of Vampire Hunter has been passed down to Barack Obama. I mean, what was he going to do? Whistle his teeth at them? Drone strike Transylvania? Come on, man. We could go on and on, of course, but you get the trend. Since the 90s, vampires have been all the rage, and they can be split into two generic plot lines. Either good people are out to kill evil vampires, or the vampires are sexy bad boys. It's hilarious to think that the undead walking corpses that squirt blood when pricked have turned into pale lovers. To many in the past, vampires were far from romantic. Why then have some people throughout history believed in vampires? There is a lot of speculation on the topic, but a huge reason is ignorance of the death and decomposition processes. Corpses swell as the gases from decomposition increase and the skin becomes darker. Also, blood can ooze from the nose and mouth as a result of higher internal pressure. This gives a corpse the appearance of being gorged on blood. Funny enough, when you quote-unquote pop these swell bodies with a stake, blood and air escape, producing a groaning sound. Over time, skin degrades and shrinks inward, making teeth, hair, and nails look longer than before. A darker explanation is the occasional occurrence of burying people alive due to ignorance of medical phenomena. In the past, if a body was exhumed, there could be claw marks on the inside of the coffin and blood on the mouth from an attempted escape. And in fact, I recently heard about a case in Australia where a man was not in a coffin, but in a body bag. And the same thing happened. They thought he tried to claw his way out. There was blood on his gown when there hadn't been before. He might have been trapped in there and suffocated. And he was still alive. So this is not just something that happened only in the past. It still occasionally happens in our modern day from time to time. Also, if graves were found dug up, 
and caskets were opened, there was likely a grave robbery. But in the imaginations of some, the body could have simply reanimated as some kind of monster and fled into the night. When disease devastated an area, ancient people didn't know enough about contagion theory to blame it on natural causes. So they could have turned to human causes and blamed vampires for infecting people. Also, stories about vampires tend to resemble rabies cases. Humans with rabies dislike sunlight and garlic because they're hypersensitive. They tend to be more active at night, they have hypersexual tendencies, they desire to bite others, and they share traits with rabies carriers such as wolves and bats. And just as a vampire bite can turn the victim into a vampire as well, a bite from a rabid animal can infect and even kill a human without medical intervention. But beyond physical explanations, there are also psychological reasons for people to fall into superstitious mania. Death is a scary thing, and humans have always struggled with their own mortality and the death of loved ones. So it's not surprising that people's imaginations occasionally went wild with scenes of their dead relatives coming back to haunt them, especially if there was guilt towards the deceased at their death. Perhaps you wronged them, and the dead wanted their revenge. Vampires are often portrayed as hypersexual and or sexual deviants, a fact that is not lost on the modern vampire genre. True Blood is the perfect example. If you're a fan of Sigmund Freud, I'm sure your head is full of theories about this. One might say that vampires represented repressed sexual desires and fears, but to say the very least, I'm not a fan of Freud, so I will leave it at that. Finally, we must remember that the 18th and 19th centuries were times of change and uncertainty. Some historians have compared Count Dracula and the peasants he killed to the relationship between the nobles and peasantry in the ancient regime, one of parasitic exploitation. Voltaire and Marx both use vampire analogies to describe the ruling class's relationship to the oppressed class. Vampire lore, both in its reception and content, has evolved much over time. For example, when Dracula was published, those in Victorian society were absolutely horrified. Why? Count Dracula became a vampire because he had cursed God. He had the unique ability to not only kill the body, but also the soul by damning people to everlasting earthly life and preventing them from entering heaven. Van Helsing, a scientist and devout Christian, almost served as Dracula's savior. Notice how Van Helsing uses religious objects, such as crucifixes and other sacramentals, to control Dracula and defeat him. In a sense, Dracula was like a devil. With that being said, why have vampires been in vogue for the past few decades? I would argue that the death of God in Western civilization plays a part. When traditional supernatural forces are put aside, distorted forms of it tend to pop up. Many forms of supernatural creatures have entered the popular imagination, vampires especially. That explains why vampires have become popular. But why are they desirable all of a sudden? We usually don't see werewolves or goblins depicted as boyfriend material. Well, one feature of vampires is their immortality. Belief in the afterlife is less common than back in the day, but we still yearn for everlasting life. So all of a sudden, vampires become the blessed ones. They get to live forever on Earth. On top of this, clever marketing is to blame. Teenage girls fall prey to stories of normal girls being whisked away by dangerous yet handsome men, and their love can last forever. I have a confession to make. You're in love with a vampire. You're a teenage girl. The only movies I've ever seen about vampires were the Twilight Saga movies. You poor sheltered man. Don't worry, we will get you some pop culture soon enough. Here's a little theory of mine on why vampires are all the rage. 
It's the same reason why murder documentaries are so popular. True crime podcasts are bigger than ever. And the latest Jeffrey Dahmer series has been all over the internet. And that one's called Monster, starring Evan Peters. Great actor, by the way. I'm a big fan. It's all about morbid curiosity. Humans have always been fascinated with death, destruction, evil, and sin. Which is, of course, why hangings and gladiatorial matches were among some of the most popular events in days past. And now, we have the means and the technology to produce endless documentaries, movies, and shows about such things. So by learning about the macabre, or simply viewing it, or hearing about it, we can almost live it out vicariously from the safety of our own living room couch, and quench our natural thirst for blood and horror. Some might say it adds a little excitement, a little spice, a little thrill to our otherwise dull lives. So I say, why not? Now, on to my favorite vampire films, many of which were quoted in the intro to this episode. John Carpenter's 1992 film Vampires is a grittier, modern take on the genre. It follows the adventures of professional vampire hunters led by Jack Crow, played by James Woods, who is a master slayer appointed by the Catholic Church. He and his team try to stop an ancient vampire from unleashing Doomsday. It's action-packed and an underrated film, in my opinion. Then there's Dracula Dead and Loving It, a Mel Brooks film which casts Leslie Nielsen as the titular character and Brooks himself as Van Helsing. It's a hilarious spoof of the genre and it's highly quotable. But of course, I've got to give the top spot to Bram Stoker's Dracula, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. It's starring Keanu Reeves, Winona Ryder, and Gary Oldman. It's probably the best adaptation of the Dracula story. It's a bit long and very, very strange. And Keanu's fake British accent is admittedly terrible. But that just adds to the charm, in my opinion. It's simply an iconic movie. The star-studded cast and incredible set pieces alone make it worth the watch. And Gary Oldman's performance? Top-notch, as always. A true Halloween classic. And now for the takeaways. Vlad Tepes could be considered a hero for his time and circumstances. And we should be grateful for his attempts to stop the Ottomans. From now on, instead of asking, what would Sun Tzu do? I will be asking myself, WWVD? What would Vlad do? Vampire lore is ingrained in our culture, so we should embrace it for what it is. A fun legend which entertains us, scares kids, and gives us an excuse to dress up and get candy. Although the worst parts of history tend to get watered down over time, it's important for us to learn the real stories, if only to remind ourselves of how wealthy and peaceful our lives are, so that we never take them for granted. And now, lingering questions. Were Vlad's methods really all that bad? Is there anything we can learn from him and apply to our own foreign policy? Daniel, please tell us. Vlad did nothing wrong. (laughs) And we can learn much. Uh, Basically, just read over everything that he did, copy and paste. Let's do it. I can't tell if you're joking or not. (laughs) Uh, In many ways, I am not. Because I, I think that much like in his own time, there are similar problems going on. And if we do not do something more than what we're doing now. Not necessarily going as far as he did, but I think we need to ratchet things up. We could learn a thing or two, and we must push back against invasions that are going on in the West because eventually there will be no more West if we continue to allow this to happen. Now, does that mean we go and impale people? No. I don't think we need to get to that step yet. However, I think if we just started by saying, uh, you're not welcome here, That would go a long way. You know, you don't have to do really too much before people get the message. Case in point, 
when there was all this talk of the wall and Trump said, when I get in there, I'm building the wall, this and that. He hadn't even built one section of wall and already border crossings dropped. They decreased by enormous amounts just from the rhetoric alone. People who were coming here and violating the laws knew that they were not going to be as welcomed or have such an easy time when they got here. So really, that may be the first step in the right direction. And maybe that's all we need. So maybe if we just changed our attitude, that would go a long way. What do you think? It even it brings to mind the Hungarian president. Have you heard of him? I have a little kind bit. Kind of nationalist, anti-Islam guy. I, I forget his name. He's infamous in Europe, but he doesn't want any Muslims coming into his country. And a lot of them were coming in from the Syrian civil war. And he said, nope. And he was like, he might have even started building a wall or something. I don't know. But either way, he wasn't accepting any migrants and had some kind of border security to ensure that. He's kind of like the Trump of Hungary. Yeah. And that's all it took was him saying, no, I don't like that. Beef up security. Then people already know. All right. Don't waste your time trying to get into Hungary because they don't want us here. You know, if you really wanted to, to get, if you're feeling froggy, you could just pick out some of the worst of the worst, awful, terrible criminals like... People you know have been convicted of crimes in their home countries. Evil, terrible, rapists. And you just impale them, one or two of them, that will send a huge message. And really, you know, who cares about some evil, awful, terrible, pedophile, rapist guy, right? If that scares away the rest of them, maybe that'd be worth it. I'm not saying that we should necessarily do it, but it would definitely send the right message. But what do I know? In terms of scariness... How do vampires compare to other Halloween villains, like uh, monsters and creatures, aliens, masked killers, ghosts? For me, demons will always be the, the scariest, because I, I believe they're real and sometimes accurately depicted. Vampires, there's like no chance they exist, so it's like I have to use a lot of imagination to be scared by them in a movie. But if they did exist, they would be pretty scary. But it's it's physically impossible. Like, actually, this... This professor somewhere in the U.S., he did a study on, it's called a geometrical progression. You have a vampire, he bites two people, each of them bite two more people, you know. He said if there was only one person and they had to feed, each vampire had to feed once a month, which is less than they would, like within a few years, the entire human population would, would be vampires. So that was his disproof of the existence of vampires. Yeah, and it just it would, doesn't work out. It would uh, increase exponentially and, and very quickly. You're right. But there is a flaw in his logic that all the efforts they were doing, like stabbing corpses and, you know, killing vampires, that probably kept their numbers down. So he didn't consider that in his study. Oh, he didn't consider the Van Helsing element. No, no. He just thought they would not do anything about it. But he was foolish. That is foolish. You have to yeah. consider that because there would be some people trying to hunt vampires. I know. Hey, I would team up to do it. Heck yeah, that'd be fun. I guess they're somewhat scary sometimes. But like the more ridiculous a monster is, the less scary it is, in my opinion. Like it's just a huge thing as tall as Empire State Building. It's just like, okay, that's that's dumb. What about Slender Man? Yeah, Slender Man is pretty scary too. But he's not like so obnoxiously different that it's just stupid. No, I agree. I think the farther away you move the monster or the creature, Halloween villain, from being human, I think the scarier they are. Like a vampire is not that scary. Werewolf even not that scary because they're basically human with just some teeth or they turn into a wolf every now and then on full moons. Whatever. But they can almost be reasoned with in some capacity. Like you could talk to a vampire and say, hey, man, don't kill me. You know, a werewolf you could probably have a conversation with most days out of the year. 
but then you move on to like the mass killers, the Jasons, the Michael Myers, and they start to get scarier because they just kill and they don't speak and they can't be really reasoned with. Although they are still human and, you know, depending on the lore or whatever, they may or may not be like immortal. But they resemble a human and you can imagine that they could easily be killed. So they're not as scary. But scarier than, of course, the vampire werewolf. And then as you go on, but aliens and then ghosts and things that you could never really even touch or hope to defeat in any way and can't be reasoned with. More animalistic creatures. That is scarier to me. The less likely it is for me to defeat it or shoot it, the scarier it is. That's my take on it. But I love me some Jason and some Michael Myers. Man, give me that all day. Why are teenage girls obsessed with romantic vampire stories? Good question. I think girls just love exotic men. They like guys who have accents, you know? And if you're (laughs) a vampire from Transylvania, that checks a lot of boxes. And you're probably wealthy because you've been living a long time and you're like a count, right? So that's what women want, right? Isn't it? (laughs) But in all seriousness, I mean, it kind of fits into like the bad boy persona. Like this is just some weird, mysterious guy. And and humans just in general like mystery. And I think women enjoy a mysterious man. You know, they want to try and figure him out. They want to see what this this guy's about, especially if he's tall and wealthy, cool accent, and can take them on exotic, strange adventures. And what about you? What do you think? I agree. And lastly, the most important question of this entire episode Are you Team Edward or Team Jacob? Team Jacob. Oh, no. Dude, Jacob is a total simp. He is such a simp. And he's such a... He allows himself to be friend-zoned. Edward is... is, He's not a Chad. Because there is no Chads in the the Twilight universe. But if... Give him the choice between the two. Edward, I feel like, has a little bit more testosterone. He's less of a simp. Riddle me this. Who doesn't shower, like, but once a month? I don't know. I felt like Jacob and Edward both were, were kind of dirty because one no, guy's a Robert, Robert Pattinson literally like hardly ever showered. Oh, once. in real life? He, yeah. And when he was filming, I mean, like he was notoriously bad smelling, I'm pretty sure. Was that a method acting thing? I don't know. Mm, either case, uh, I think you have to put you have to put that aside a little bit. You got you to shower, bro. If that's the case, maybe I'll change my vote and I'll say that at least Taylor Lautner, as an actor, he looked cleaner. He certainly had better abs. You know, yeah, and then they, Edward is like so skinny, pale, white. Yeah, he just. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Edward just looked like he needed to get outside a little more, but I guess he was like allergic to sunlight or whatever. Yeah, so. a lot of that was probably makeup. But Robert Pattinson himself is kind of pale. Yeah, Jacob just looks so so much more lively. You know. Yeah, I think so. I he think was... he had a better personality, but what do I know? But then he he like sulked. You're right after. <laughs> After she got engaged to Edward, just mad all the time. Yeah. But then he fell in love with her infant daughter. Oh, is that what happens? Yeah. Like her, her mutant baby. Is that a Mormon thing? <laughs> I don't know, but she, he fell in love with her daughter and like six months she was like full grown. So they were good. Oh, that's right. That's because she was a mutant. So she grew up real fast. Wow. Dang, you really it, did uh, go see all these movies. <laughs> I didn't know any of that. Everybody, you learned something new about Evan today. He's a big Twilight fan. I could go on for hours about this topic. Oh, I believe you. <laughs> I believe you. I've, I've seen the posters on your wall in your bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all for tonight's show. We hope you enjoyed our dark and terrifying tales. Join us again next time for even more ancient wisdom. <laughs> gotcha! <laughs>